Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. He came as peace embodied. And his peace is both a gift and an invitation. He came to us to give us the gift of peace and also to invite us into cultivating peace. At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we see this gift and invitation of peace portrayed in the story of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist. And it's interesting that Luke's Gospel account doesn't start with Jesus, but it starts with this story. And it starts with a story that is preparing the way for Jesus's revival, or arrival. <laughs> I guess it's revival too, but um, it creates anticipation for the main character. And it's something that we should just skip over to get to the good part. There's so much beauty in this story that I honestly hadn't paid a lot of attention to in the past. And so we're going to read the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth um, in Luke 1, verses 5 to 25. And it's a little bit long, um, but stick with me, it's good. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many people will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. When I was reading this passage earlier this week, it was that last line that got me. The Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. When the angel, uh, I, was, I was struck by God's tenderness and mercy towards this couple. 
in the midst of this greater thing that God was doing in the world. When the angel first appeared to Zechariah to tell him that he would have a son who was going to fulfill this role of preparing the way for the Messiah to enter, he began by saying, your prayer has been heard. God heard the prayers that they had been praying for decades. Um, He saw the tears that they had cried in the darkest nights. He wept over the disgrace that they experienced. God knew that this couple was righteous and faithful, even when their community assumed that they must have some horrible hidden sin that would have caused their barrenness. God was coming to save the world, but he also cared about the shame and heartbreak that this couple felt. God was coming to rescue the world, and that included restoration for those who grieved, for those who had been crushed and excluded and disgraced. How beautiful is that? That's a compelling story. That really is good news. And T. Wright puts it this way. God regularly works through ordinary people, doing what they normally do, who with a mixture of half-faith and devotion are holding themselves ready for whatever God has in mind. This story is about much more than Zechariah's joy at having a son at last, or Elizabeth's exultation in being freed from the scorn of the mothers in the village. It is about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes. But the needs, hopes, and fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in this larger story, precisely because of who God is. Um, the God of lavish, self-giving love, as Luke will tell us in so many ways throughout his gospel. When this God acts on a large scale, he takes care of smaller human concerns as well. And I think that sometimes our understanding of peace is too narrow. That we can either lean toward one extreme where we think something that an individual can experience in their body or soul. Or we just think of peace in more cosmic terms, where it's just about the systems that cause injustice and oppression being set right. I know for me, it's easier to place value on the cosmic peace. My issues don't seem as pressing in light of some of the cosmic needs, the injustice and oppression that we see. But there is beauty in knowing that God is big enough to hold every need, that God can carry the cosmic needs all the areas of injustice and oppression, and also carry my small personal needs. He cares about it all, is present to it all, and is working in it all. His peace is both cosmic and personal. When I experience peace, when I experience healing and restoration, I am more whole and therefore better able to cultivate peace in the world around me. I'm more capable of holding space for others' pain, of speaking out against injustice, of helping to repair broken systems and relationships. It's not either or, but it's both together. We see in Jesus' life that he was deeply personal while also remaining focused on his grand mission of saving the world because he knew that the salvation of the world was tied up with the wholeness and restoration of each person. And maybe this is one of the reasons that Jesus came in a body As a human, he shared meals with people. He looked into people's eyes. He touched those who were considered untouchable. In his divine power, he healed people from all their ailments. 
And in his humanity, he called them out of hiding and showed them that they're worthy of love. We're going to see more of this connection between the cosmic and personal pieces. We continue reading, uh, picking up in verse 67. And this is Zechariah's prophecy after John is born. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And I love this image of the rising sun coming from heaven, giving light to those sitting darkness and in the shadow of death. There are different ways to think about darkness. Sometimes people equate darkness with evil. But I think a better definition for darkness that we see in the Bible is simply a state in which we're unable to see things as they really are, or when the truth is hidden from our eyes. Sitting in darkness, unable to see what's around us, can feel scary, lonely, confusing. Sometimes darkness can like a crushing weight. It can feel like the shadow of death. But it's here in these spaces that Jesus enters in as the light of the world, shining his light on us, revealing himself to us, reminding us that we're not alone, but that he is with us, that he will show us where to go one step at a time, and he will walk alongside us. He will comfort us with his tender mercy when we stumble. This is the source of our peace. Jesus shines his light on us and gives us his peace, and then he invites us to walk in the way of peace with him. Just as we see in the story of John, where, when God blesses Elizabeth and Zechariah with this sweet gift that reaches the depths of their soul. And then he calls John to prepare the hearts of others for God's peace and reconciliation. As it says in verse 17, turning the, parent, the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous or the just. John wasn't the one who would bring salvation. He wasn't the one who would heal people's hearts and bring reconciliation, but he was given the job of preparing the way. John was fulfilling the scripture that we see in Isaiah 40, where it says, A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John was given this role of preparing the people for the coming Messiah. And the Messiah is the one who would rescue them. But there was work that needed to be done first in order to create fertile soil for Christ's kingdom to take root. Peace is both passive and active. Because God is the one who brings peace. God does the work of restoration and healing that we cannot do. 
And yet there is work for us to do in order to receive God's peace. We see this call to make a level path for the Lord, to raise up every valley and to make low every mountain and hill. And this preparation was not so that Jesus wouldn't trip up on his journey, because Jesus is steady. This preparation is for us. Jesus is, is coming and establishing his kingdom of peace. But we create barriers to that peace, both in our hearts and in our world. And so the call to prepare the way for the Lord is the call to ask ourselves, what are the walls you've built up in your heart? What are the dividing walls of hostility between you and others that you've created or supported? What are the ways that you have sought the world's version of peace at the expense of others? John tells us in John 14, 27, that the peace that he gives is not like the peace that the world gives. The peace that Jesus gives doesn't leave anyone out. Just like we talked about in the beginning, God created a world that functions best when everyone has a part to play, when everyone's dignity is held, when we work together towards the flourishing of all. If peace causes harm and brokenness to another, it's not true peace. If peace for one neglects justice for another, it's not true peace. Many of the systems in our world have been skewed toward peace and justice for some at the expense of others. As we seek to follow Jesus, to be peacemakers and join him in the work of restoration, our goal is not to just turn everything upside down so that now the, the oppressed will be powerful and the powerful will be oppressed. Instead, we're called to really believe that our flourishing is wrapped up with others' flourishing, and therefore to live in a way that upholds the dignity of all, that addresses the pain and the needs of all. But in order to get there, to see the kingdom of God realized on earth, those who have held the power are going to have to give up some of their power and comfort. Those who have been exalted will need to be humbled, and those who have, humbled will, have been humbled will need to be exalted. The mountains made low and the valleys raised up to create level ground. This will absolutely come at a cost to those who have the most and it's gonna feel disorienting. And I think that's why Jesus says in Luke 18 that it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because oftentimes we'd rather settle for false peace if it means we get to be comfortable. Thankfully for all of us, God didn't choose his comfort over our peace. Rather, he humbled himself, took on flesh, and entered into our broken, messy world. He came shining light on those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. May it be so. As we finish up today, um, I just want to leave you guys with a few reflection questions um, to maybe consider throughout the week um, as you consider ref con continue reflecting on, on embodied peace. What are the areas in your life where you are longing for peace? In what ways is God calling you to cultivate peace in the world around you? And what is one step that you can take in each of those areas to prepare the way for God to do the work of restoration? <clears throat>